Welcome to Mint, the corner of where crypto meets the creator economy. My name is Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you how the creators of today are building the communities of tomorrow by harnessing the power of Web3. Before we kick off this episode, I wanted to recognize one of the NFT sponsors that's helping make Mint a reality. They are CyberConnect, a decentralized social graph protocol allowing users to own and control their social connections while providing a universal data layer backed by powerful social features to empower developers. Already with 150,000 users and 3 million connections, CyberConnect is the largest decentralized social graph supporting Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Near, and Solana with more coming soon. To learn more, visit cyberconnect.me and start connecting with everyone in Web3. This episode welcomes Eric Reppel, head of data at Zora, who joins Mint to give us an intro on all things blockchain data, from why you should analyze your collector's activity and how to apply these insights to grow your community. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Eric, welcome to Mint, my friend. Good to meet you. Thank you for being on. How's it going? I'm good, man. Happy, uh, happy Memorial Day. Yes, sir. Yeah, Happy Memorial Day. Yeah. Uh, so what, what turned into a, a bidding frenzy for Lil Now and has now turned into a podcast episode. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm stoked to have you on. And prior to the bid, I actually I didn't know who you were. But when I when that I forgot who it was posted a thread as to who was competing for the noun. I was kind of like doing some more research as to who was who and I actually came across your profile and found it really interesting. Uh, Zora has been represented on the podcast before and for a minute now, we've been talking about the data side of things, and you're no stranger to data. So I'll shut up because this is all about you. But before we kind of dive in, who are you, Eric? What does the world need to know about you? Um, and how did you get your start into crypto? Yeah. Um, so I've been in crypto for... I, I first got into crypto in like 2010. Um, okay. Like I was a... I was like... like I'm not, I was like on the Bitcoin forums way back in the day. I don't know if you remember StumbleUpon. It was like this browser mm -hmm. extension that For sure. I like loved StumbleUpon when I was in high school. And I like randomly hit the Bitcoin forums one day in the Bitcoin white paper and uh, in like 2010, 2011. And uh, immediately it was like, wow, that's super interesting. I was, I was like, I don't know, 16 at the time. And so it wasn't a like technical thing, but I thought it was like the idea is really fascinating. And, you know, it's this interesting mystery of like who is this satoshi guy um and me and a, me and a buddy of mine ended up buying like a tiny tiny like 100 bucks worth of bitcoin bitcoin was like i don't know 90 dollars at the time and uh we were like day trading in the back of our like high school chemistry class on like a little laptop and uh that's like my first foy into crypto and then i, I kind of forgot about it for a couple of years uh and then you know went and did a uh, degree in, in computer science with a specialization in ML. And uh, like, as I was, you know, a couple of years into the degree, I realized I could probably understand how this stuff works technically now and uh, kind of went back through it. This was like the early Ethereum days, like 2015, 16. Um, and yeah, I've been in, been in ever since. I, I was at Coinbase for about uh, four years there. I was the first ML platform engineer slash ML engineer at Coinbase. Cool. Um, yeah, led that team for a while. And then I actually left the crypto realm for three months, went to Clubhouse for, uh, I was there for just under three months and uh, 
ended up just missing crypto too much. And, and now I'm here at Zora as the head of data. Nice. So early, early career prior to college, were you just amateurly building software and coding or was your first kind of like stab at it during school? Um, so I didn't really start coding in earnest until I was about 20. Um, oh, okay. yeah, my dad is an engineer though. And I always thought like, I, I don't want to do what my dad does. He's a software engineer, of course. And and so I actually went started my degree as a, as a mechanical engineer. And then, you know, I'd coded a few things on the side. But one summer and after my first year, I really had, I had, I had this idea where I really wanted to build this like IoT device for tracking like dynamic path of a barbell while, while you're lifting. I was a competitive mm-hmm. powerlifter at the time. And uh, I needed code to, to do it. And so I kind of taught myself how to code and I was like, oh, actually, this is pretty sick and it's way higher leverage than mechanical engineering. It's way quicker feedback cycle. It's much more addicting than, you know, being in CAD all day. And mm. uh, yeah, switched my degree, never, never went back. Wow. Bodybuilder. Are you like, what, are you pretty much in size? I mean, I can tell your shoulders are pretty like wide. Do you still do that uh, consistently? Weightlifter, powerlifter, not a bodybuilder. It's a significant, oh, okay. Significantly All right, so it shows you sh- shows you my my skinny ass arms. And shows you <laughs> how uneducated I am about it. Wait, teach me about that for a sec. What does that entail? What's so, the so difference, really? Bodybuilding is like how jacked can you look, and powerlifting okay. is like how strong can you be. And so, so competitive powerlifting is really just how what's your one rep maximum for a bench press, a squat, and then a deadlift, and then add okay. those together, and, and you get a total. Um, so I, I, at one point was the, uh, I'm from Vancouver. I was at one point the provincial champion in my weight class for the junior division in powerlifting, mm. which sounds really impressive, except that I, it was like when I won it, it was, I was, I came first out of two people, but nice. Hey, <laughs> so, came first. That's, hey, all, you know, that's all that matters. Hey, we out, here <laughs> we out here winning. What would you say the similarities are between, um, between powerlifting and I guess, programming ml uh essentially what you do professionally full-time like are there any similarities uh yeah i think so i think like people who get really good at powerlifting you end up having to be very data-driven this sounds like a cop-out answer this sounds like i'm tailoring it but it's true like you have to actually get very data-driven in how you train because especially as a natural powerlifter like i was you hit kind of your natural potential pretty quickly and then a lot of it comes down to like how good is your training regimen and and a lot of things like volume and uh, accommodation is is very like biomechanical and and technique driven and then also like can you design a program that fits your physiology correctly to maximize your potential and so a lot of that is like really analytical and, and like breaking down you know sets reps approach there's it's it's like a whole whole field yeah you know, when you were at Clubhouse, Clubhouse has like a, a unique point in history in crypto, um, specifically in the NFT, like early, early NFT days. Uh, Blau, Justin Blau, uh, DJ, founder and CEO of Royal. Or I don't know if he's a CEO, but founder of Royal. Um, he basically leveraged Clubhouse and I guess like audio based marketing as a way to kind of point himself in into the web three world as this icon of having this glorious drop that he did with the live room. And I just remember clubhouse being like, like this, this, this point in NFT and crypto history as being like this remarkable platform that helped spearhead a lot of education in the space. Right. 
were you in at clubhouse during that time or what was your experience like over there? Um, I was, I kind of entered clubhouse near the end of that time. Like as okay. it was kind of on the like second peak of the cycle, uh, I had a great time at clubhouse. Like I really like all the people at clubhouse. I still have a bunch of friends who work there. I think the thing people don't realize is that clubhouse is insanely popular everywhere except for North America. Like they have mm. huge, if you ever want to, if you ever want to trip, go search out Persian clubhouse. It's like huge. Like last week there was a room with like 28,000 people in it for like, wow. On Persian clubhouse. And it's, uh, wow. <laughs> it's the same, the same is true as like, of like India and Brazil and a bunch of other like places that I think once you lose the U S like Silicon Valley narrative, people just think that you're gone, but right. Yeah, internationally, the people forget there's like 8 billion people on the planet and right. a lot of like, especially India, there's like a culture of you're kind of always on the phone with your family and friends. And so Clubhouse is like the natural product for certain markets that have that kind of like casual conversational demo. Um, yeah, I, I had a great time at Clubhouse. Clubhouse, is, I don't think people realize it. The other thing I think people don't realize about Clubhouse is that they have have like genuinely one of the strongest engineering teams that I've seen. Like mm. they were super underwater like during that first elon peak i think they had like five employees or something but they've assembled like a really really like top group of talent over there so they're amazing wow. to work with i just i just wow. i just missed crypto too much away. listen once you get into the hole it's kind of hard to get out um it's just it's vast and i remember when i first got in in 2017 and the second i kind of discovered what you could do with the technology and learn more about the white paper whatever I was like, this is what I want to commit myself to. I don't know for how long, but it's the only thing I can see. Um, and that kind of brings you after Clubhouse, I guess, like to, to Zora itself. Um, and the reason also why I reached out, I wanted to do an episode uh, around data coming from someone who's been in the weaves you know, of it for, for quite a bit of time. So on your Twitter bio, on your LinkedIn, it says you're a head of data. Okay, But what does that mean for, for those who don't know? Yeah, so I think head of data means something that you most people wouldn't guess. So most people think data, they think data science. Um, what I do is actually lead the team that does everything between the blockchain and up to and including the APIs at Zora. So we do indexing, we do search, we're planning on doing recommendations, uh, we do API design, but everything that actually takes what is on chain and makes it available for people to use uh, through applications and then those APIs, we're actually launching our new newest version of our API on uh, Wednesday, two days from now, as we're filming. Uh, those APIs are used by Zora.co, like our marketplace, and then mm -hmm. other people uh, who, who build both like, major projects and like more kind of uh, indie things on top of it. Um, and so it's, it. it's like, there's the data science aspects and ML aspects that we're kind of planning on getting to and investing more in the coming months but really like the thing i've been spending my last like five months on is is like building a really powerful indexer so that we can take all the data that's on chain and make it curate it and uh, make it available in a way that i don't think is currently possible got it so for those who aren't familiar with zora at least from the consumer facing side i think a lot of creators can understand that zora or have maybe interact with zora as like a marketplace for buying and selling nfts listing nfts but on the back end you guys have this entire vehicle uh where a bunch of marketplaces have kind of like built their foundation off of initially catalog sound.xyz i'm not mistaken and and many 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 others um so when you talk about these apis i just want to add a clarification i guess for those who don't really understand 
there's an entire like engine behind behind Zora, um, which from what I understand, the consumer facing marketplace is just to kind of like encapsulate the vision of what it can be. But the real product is what's happening underneath the hood. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's totally right. I think a lot of people don't get that. Uh, and you explained it really well. The way I think about Zora is like the layers, right? So the, the lowest layer of what Zora is, is, is the protocol, uh, which is the on-chain NFT marketplace. So that's a lot of words. What does that mean? It means that uh, for, take, take OpenSea, for example, the settlement of NFTs and the transfers on-chain using the Wyvern protocol, uh, which is kind of like what Zora's protocol competes with, in quotes. I think there's a lot of differences between Zora's marketplaces and, and Wyvern, but let's set that aside. The order book yeah. for those markets is actually stored in OpenSea's database. So you can't actually see what people want to buy or sell on-chain with something like OpenSea right now. The With Zora, like all of the data of like who's who, who's bid on what, who who's asked what, what auctions are available, all of that lives on-chain. And so you don't need access to OpenSea's API in order to like build these interfaces. And so that's kind of like the lowest layer. And then what my team works on is making all that on-chain data available in a way that's like not crazy. Like it is hard to read blockchain data still. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think, kind of, kind of a niche skill, but people know how to build, people know how to use REST APIs. They know how to use GraphQL. We try to make that data more palatable and easier to use and also index every NFT, like find all the NFTs, make that data available as well as our market data. And then like, you know, if we go one level up the stack, we have like a community tools team that tries to make those APIs as easy to use and like as low code as possible. Uh, My team focuses on like, how can we expose and have the most amount of data? Community tools says like, hey, let's take that complexity and try to roll it up into like opinionated, nicer tools that are a little higher level. Uh, and then Zora.co increasingly is kind of this like roll up of all all the those three layers of the stack that kind of shows you what you can build using all the tools that we have in the open. Got it. But it's like this vertical approach versus this horizontal approach that yeah. some of the places are taking. A lot of creators understand, or at least try to understand, NF- or crypto and Web three from the NFT point of view. A lot of the narrative around Web three and why it's so powerful is because it's the ownership layer to the internet. And you coming from a data background, I, I think you would understand this kind of like this thesis better than anybody else, right? Because you're actually playing with the data that people own. You're indexing and creating APIs with what people kind of own on chain. So from your point of view, what does ownership really mean on chain, right? I guess we can just start there. This is a, this is a really good question that I think. So what, what is ownership, right? The only thing that you're actually that you actually own in an NFT contract is an effectively like a row in a table in the contract. So when you have a collection, uh, there's what's called like a token URI. You as a person, you as an address or a wallet, uh, can look up what your th- what your pieces within a collection or a contract are, and so you own whatever is at that token URI. But that token URI oftentimes links off-chain and is on like some centralized server or links to an S3 bucket or something like that. And so like technically the thing that you own is just the thing that's on-chain. And I'm, I'm glossing over things like on-chain NFTs and on-chain metadata, mm-hmm. but there's a ton of stuff that if someone who isn't you decides to stop paying their AWS bill, like it'll just disappear. And th- mm-hmm. that's like 
I think a lot of like the JPEG era NFTs aren't actually decentralized. Like they, they're either surfaced through other people's APIs or uh, they're just in an S3 bucket or wh- wherever they may be. But you don't actually, if you do, you own that JPEG in an S3 bucket that you don't pay the bill for is, is kind of a like philosophical question almost. Hmm. And so I think like eventually over time, especially in a bear market, we're going to see more projects lean into on-chain and on-chain metadata, on-chain SVGs, things like uh, IPFS um, for hosting as an alternative to S3. Uh, because let, let's take an example, right? If you have a project and the artist mints and all their assets are in an S3 bucket and they you know, get hit by a bus and their estate doesn't cover their AWS bill, that bucket's getting deleted and your content, <laughs> maybe you made a copy of it, but the thing that's on chain links to that bucket. And so it's like, mm. you may have the copy, but you have no way of proving like, I swear that, that like, this is the JPEG that was linked in that bucket that we have no oh. proof of. But if it's on IPFS, like, you know, IPFS, the interplanetary file system, a decentralized storage layer, you have the ability to, even if the artist, you know, vanishes, you can still keep paying for the pinning of that content and like the the link will resolve, so to say. Um, Got it. I, I, but I think like from an IP perspective, this is kind of a this is kind of like an interesting rabbit hole that like I'm not an IP lawyer, but I think that IP within NFTs is also like super underexplored right now. So that's like also another another huge discussion, for example, on the music NFT side. Like when you buy a music NFT, what do you actually own, right? Um, and you have projects like Royal, uh, like Decent, the list goes on and on, that are trying to tokenize IP rights or fractionalize IP rights, right? And the associated collectible that you buy with it, you also get whatever, uh, I guess, like real world value kind of like accrued with it. Um, and even then, like people still don't really have an understanding of what they're buying. Right. And I, and I was kind of like at fault for that too. And when I initially started buying things, I was like, okay, like if I, if I buy the NFT, then the song is in my wallet, you know? So I own, I own the song now. Right. But the funny thing is, is like the real world and the the online world, they're not always connected, right. From like a legal and and IP point of view. So having a definition from your, from your kind of like perspective on what ownership is actually kind of like really helps the next like piece of this conversation because part of owning your data, right? You should be able to do cool things with that, right? Um, and I feel like it's a subject like that element of doing cool things with the data that you own is really underexplored. Creators, they have a band of collectors online. They have anonymous wallet addresses, but underneath that, they have layers and layers of information that they kind of can tap into on their individual collectors, which I'll shut up and I'd love for you to kind of explain this kind of like uh, this, what, what this called? I'm about to go on like a, a rampage, of like my, my love for this type of conversation, but take it away. <laughs> I, I want to hear your thoughts on this too. I, I feel like you got some good thoughts here. Um, I'll yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, go, go. My, I think like the, the fundamental thing is like a lot of this data is actually hard to get on chain and it's hard to get period in from APIs and stuff. And so I think the barrier to entry for a lot of artists is higher than it probably should be. And that's where we're trying to, you know, build some of these products and, and things that make that easier. The other thing is a lot of these things are only licensed for like non-commercial use. And you can really make an argument that, you know, making a derivative mint is 
commercial use. And so this is why I think like things like nouns and more like CCO projects, like Creative Commons uh, projects are really compelling because depending on like your gradient as an artist or a creator, depending on your like where on the decentralization spectrum you want to fall, I think there's like a more or less correct model for you. And so the, I think if you're, if you're BTS, right, you have a billion fans, you have no, you, every piece of your IP is worth just so much. You probably just want to do like a, Hey, this is an NBA top shot equivalent. Like you have, it's like a trading card kind of thing. It's commemorative. If you're trying to bootstrap community, you, I would argue like Nouns has proven you want to go full CCO. No one owns it. So everyone owns it. Anybody can do anything with, with the art commercially, non-commercially, personally, whatever, make derivatives, everything, because you want to propagate a meme as far as it'll go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's a bunch of middle ground in there where the, if you're an independent artist, you may want to use something like Royal. I think Royal makes a lot of sense where uh, as a fan, you're, you're almost, I don't want to call it speculating, but you're investing in the artist. If you think that there are an artist that'll blow up and increase their streaming revenue, your cut will like appreciate over time. That's it's very close to an investment asset, which right. I'm sure the Royal legal team wouldn't appreciate me saying, but uh, I, I think like people don't think enough about where they want to fit on that fill on that spectrum. And then I think that the technology side of it right now, it's not easy enough to take advantage of that composability and that how you can kind of remix different platforms and different concepts because a lot of this data isn't open. Yeah. So back, back on that subject, because BTS knows their Spotify data to an extent. They know their social media web two data to an extent, uh, but they still don't own that data, right? And with not owning that data, you risk uh, deplatformization, if that's even a word, where we, you see this happen all the time, where you see people build an audience on TikTok and then for whatever reason, they did something that could be like gray area that got them removed and banned forever. And so goes their following and all their audience and everything. And you know, you asked about my, my point of view. So I issue free NFTs for my listeners to collect every single season. I've done it since season two. Um, and these are free NFTs, free to mint, or at least almost free to mint. Um, and for season four, I made them non-transferable. I made them soul bound. Because in the future, as the podcast grows, I envision me doing something really valuable with me being able to prove who were my initial contributors and participants, right? But my dilemma as a podcaster, as a creator, is while I see who are men and women from Spotify data and Apple Music data through Buzzsprout, I see the type of traffic that I get on my on my website and Google's able to decipher what's male, what's female, the trends of, of audience, where they came from, heat maps, etc. I know nothing about who's collected my free NFTs online, right? When in reality, like all the information's there. So for example, okay. I want to know how many of them are holding board apes. Okay. I want to know how many of them also hold, um, I don't know, FWB. What pull-ups have they collected from ETH Denver and from ETH Amsterdam, et cetera? Um, I can maybe tell if they're male or female based off the assets that they hold. For example, are they in boys club, which is a female only club, right? And I can tell how many of my collectors may be female. So if I start seeing all these like these trends and these these touch points, I can then create better tailored content for them. I can bring in better sponsors because if I know, let's say, I don't know, uh, 70% have at least one ETH in their wallet, 
then I can create interesting curated experiences for those early supporters from there on out, right? That's kind of like my my mentality, on my my understanding about this as a as someone who doesn't code, who doesn't know how to query uh, uh, use SQL from from like doing analytics, for example, and I don't know how to kind of propagate that custom data for me. But that's kind of like my my understanding from a high level point of view. Am I in the right direction here? What am I missing? Yeah, I think you're you you're losing me for a second there when you're like oh, I want all this demographic data. But you brought it back around to like exactly to I think like the real power of these things, right? Where you the trade-off of on-chain data is is it's fully open, but it's it's uh, higher intent. And so the reason why Google can kind of tell you know, gender and all these things is because is they associate many different, you don't enter your gender on Google typically, right? You, they're, they're, they have a model that kind of predicts what you are, I assume. They, if I was Google, I would have a model that predicts who you are based off your activity, gender being one dimension to potentially who you are, right? Mm -hmm. And the, all the other things like how targetable you are, what, how, how like potentially valuable you are as a like recurring user, all these things are like, things that you can model based off of aggregated activity. Whereas on chain, you don't have clicks. You only have the highest intention things because someone has spent money or gas to, to do that thing. And so in a way, your users are like way more valuable if because they're higher conviction for the things that they've done, but it, you have way less some aggregate data. And so to your point, I think right now there's one deficiency that tooling is really bad. Uh, and this is why, you know, we're, why we ended up building a full API instead of just relying on stuff like the graph or like other APIs is because we think that we have a take that'll make some of those things a lot easier. And over time, we can start to expose that power and like no code and low code solutions. Um, but you have to start with access and like availability of, of that aggregate data. You, you have to like have everything before you can make it available. Um, and so to your like query of, how many of my users hold uh, an Ford Ford apes. Yeah. Ford apes. Yeah. That's a thing that you can totally do from this API, not to pitch up my own book, but the, it's a thing you can totally do from our API that we're launching on Wednesday. And I think that the ability for, to like easily get things like that is going to make a lot of experiences a lot more robust because you're going to now be able to know like what's in your wallet is relatively easy but there's there's a whole bunch of like extra steps that you described they can do if you just have more data um and yeah, yeah. i think i think like this like centralization decentralization trade-off is like really underplayed especially for creators minting because there's, there's no even on chain like you can know if someone owns a like a an ape from within a contract and so if you're a developer, you can write a contract where, hey, every mint that is held, every mint by a wallet that's holding this type of thing gets like some, you know, at mint time special treatment, similar to like the, similar to mutant names, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think things mm -hmm. like that where you actually compose ownership and, and tailor experience based off not only what are in people's wallets, but like aggregates for like both viewing websites and also like, on-chain experiences is like very, very underexplored. So how, how would one creator kind of go by doing that right now? Like how can a creator, let's assume a creator that doesn't know how to code, okay? How can they go by creating these custom experiences that you and I were just talking about 
for their collectors using that data? Like, what's the best way to do that right now? I don't think there's a good way of doing it right now. Like, I think that the a lot of the tools that exist currently are very limited and they're very kind of like, let's publish your catalog of JPEGs. Uh, and to be honest with you, I don't know if you can make a low-code tool with as much power of this unless it's a very, very specialized low-code tool. And the I think those very like hyper-specialized low-code tools tend to have a lower TAM than like more general tooling, right? And that's kind of like the market reason why you see things like OpenSea's like Lazy Mint, but you don't see OpenSea's like Complex Mint. Uh, there's mm. no equivalent. So like, I think theoretically you could make a more generalized tool that hybridizes both, but it's uh, I I don't think that this is this is an underexplored niche in the market, and I think that someone will probably fill it at some point. Yeah. What's up guys, Adam Levy here. Sorry for the quick pause, but I wanted to recognize a couple of our NFT sponsors who are helping make this episode a reality. They are Coinvise and Mint Songs. First up, on Coinvise, you can create a personal or community-owned social token on Ethereum. Coinvise also helps you create incentives through token rewards and bounties, NFT business models, and bot integrations for Discord. Discover more by visiting coinvise.co today. Next up, we have Mint Songs, who is home to over 1,200 music artists in Web3. Check out the Mint Songs marketplace to support, collect, and connect with artists creating Web3 communities around their music via NFTs. In June 2022, about next month, Mint Songs will be launching their much-anticipated V2 marketplace on Ethereum, which aims to make Web3 even more accessible to music artists. Follow along on Twitter at Mint Songs or check out mintsongs.com to learn more. All right, back to the episode. So I also want to talk about like the pros and cons of, of data being like inherently public, right? And does that sway us to more of like a dystopian future of some sort? Um, and, I, and I only bring this up, Eric, because in Web2, platforms are inherently really powerful because of the data that they collect on their users, right? And also the shelter of that data. Spotify collects a ton of data on their artists, streaming data, et cetera, but they only provide so much to the artists themselves, right? Um, and it's like it's like a big complaint in the industry. While there are dashboards to kind of understand, it's very limited from what I understand. Um, in Web3, everything is inherently public and you're relying on entrepreneurs to build these tools that kind of contextualize the blockchain. Um, but with that can kind of come its pros and cons. And I'm curious from your point of view, like what are, I guess, more of the cons? Because we talked a lot about the pros and the benefits that come with a, a, a transparent database. Um, what are more of the cons of kind of like making data more inherently public? Um, what, what are your thoughts around that? I think I think the biggest con is also the pro that, mm. I mean, you can see everything, right? And so if you can see everything, people know exactly who you are. If you've doxed your wallet, they know exactly what you've done. I think there's a lot of like, there's a lot more sophistication about around doxing wallets than I think people anticipate. I think services like Chainalysis and Coinbase Analytics actually work really well if you're high intent. And so that's kind of the, you know, you you assume Google has all your data and you assume that, you know, if you're an admin within a Google system, you can probably read some of your data. Uh, but everyone is effectively a read admin on the blockchain, which is maybe okay because the data is, it's 
it's less, it's more consented, right? Everything that you, every time you interact with the blockchain, you know that the thing that you're doing is going to be on chain. It's going to be associated with your wallet. And so like, depending on how comfortable you feel, like, you know, I'm sure a lot of people, yourself included, myself included, have kind of like doxed wallets and then like semi-doxed or fully undoxed wallets. Uh, and you can kind of like opt into your level of privacy and bring whatever identity with you to whatever place you want to go. And so that's that's like quite nice. But if someone manages to dox your wallet, they can see everything that you've done. And so there is that level of concern. And uh, yeah, I mean, most of it's like, Probably the worst part is like, oh man, like you did some like cringe thing, hopefully down the road, like uh, that's like cringe in retrospect, <laughs> <laughs> but like, we'll see, right? It's, yeah. it's still early days and I, you know, the I world's want- a dark place if you, if you, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like the ultimate recipe is connecting like on-chain data to off-chain data. For example, associating like social profiles with anonymous addresses like that's when it kind of gets scary and honestly i don't think we're far away from it i don't know of anybody doing that but you'd have better context to this i feel like than than i would but i feel like that's like that's like the red line kind of thing yeah it's all these things are a spectrum right so if you've done a poor job of doxing your wallet um or sorry if you've done a poor job of obfuscating your wallet like you can probably be doxed by a very motivated actor there are some ways of, uh, you know, spinning up a wallet and funding it that are pretty hard to tra- to trace, especially for smaller amounts of currency, you know, tornado cash and stuff. Um, but ultimately, I think no one really cares. Like, unless you've broken the law or done something sketchy, like transferring from an exchange to a, a new wallet you spin up is like probably enough security for ninety nine point nine percent of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, coming from the Coinbase hot wallet to a new MetaMask, it's like, oh, well, Coinbase hot wallet, that could be one of 90 million users. Uh, and so it doesn't mean anything. And that's enough anonymity to, you know, be, be comfortable. It's like if the FBI wants you or something, or like they might, you know, subpoena Coinbase or something crazy. But ultimately, like if you haven't broken the law, I think that's like enough. Um, but there's value in, in being in public too. That's how we got to this conversation, right? The uh, I think having the kind of gradient of anonymi- anonymity, is that a word? I think so. <laughs> yeah, anonymity, that's the word. Uh, oh, yeah. Wow, I've been saying it wrong all along. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's good. Like it's, uh, But the key is like be able to opt into the level that you want and being able to like see each experience being able to accept multiple logins, right? That's the, the value yeah. of being able to bring your wallet anywhere. I remember uh, season four was all about the music industry. And I remember having like the catalog guys on the mint songs guys on, I had Blau on a bunch of people and a big point of, I guess, conversation was metadata in web three and how metadata is very much of a mess. And this vision of creating this music NFT application where you can organize all these different songs in a very seamless, intuitive way is actually quite difficult because the songs that are being published in the form of an NFT are not organized and categorized correctly so that indexers can kind of like eat all the data and spit it out in a very like, uh, I guess, user-friendly manner from what I understand. And I guess like what, what what's your perspective in terms of how data is kind of comprehended and written, at least in the form of smart contracts, 
uh, or in, in Web3 in general? And I know I'm butchering that question because I, I don't have the best insight as to what these like terminologies are and hence why you're here. But I think you know what I'm, where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so help, think, help, help me rephrase uh, that question too, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think like, let's let's delineate between on-chain and off-chain. So okay. off-chain, metadata is typically off-chain, but the, so are, are you familiar with like EIPs? Remind me, for those who don't know. So EIPs, Ethereum Improvement Plans, they get turned yeah. into ERC. And so whenever you whenever you see like ERC-721, which is like the NFT standard or ERC-1155, ERC-20, these are like improvement proposals that get turned into things that people actually do. Hmm. Uh, and those become the standards that everyone builds on top of. Got and it. so there's EIPs around pretty much everything that's on-chain. And so on-chain data is like relatively consistent. It's not, it's, it's a dark forest and it's really not as good as you would hope it would be. A lot of people don't implement ERC-721 correctly is what I learned building an indexer. Um, but at least there are standards that people are supposed to adhere to. Metadata, there is really no standard. There's kind of like the OpenSea quasi-standard, like the way that OpenSea publishes metadata. And there's a, there's a few others out there. But metadata is a mess because of the lack of standardization and no one really... There, there being anyone who mints an NFT can basically make up their own metadata standard. And then it's like, how do you access that data? Like I said, like every NFT is actually just a reference to a token URI. And so if that token URI points to, that token URI could point to a server that you need to grab a JSON file from, and that contains the metadata that links to an image and an audio track. And that's like the happy path, right? The, the, the NFT could also be on-chain metadata, which is something I personally am a fan of, where the metadata is actually encoded into the token URI, uh, which sounds ominous, but it means that it's actually on-chain instead of mm. being off-chain and you having to like rely on, if you remember that server going down example I gave, it's that's right. the that applies to metadata too. Um, and then there's the like, what's the format? What's the schema? Does it have attributes? Does it have, if it's a song, does it have album art? Does it have content? What do you do if it's a GIF? All these things, mm. right? And there's no, there's some standardization, but like no, nowhere near enough. And that's why it's hard to build indexes because it's easy to index on-chain data because of the standards. It's really hard to index metadata well because there's less standards and it can really be anything. And if you try to, if you try to build an indexer and an artist is going to be like, why doesn't my NFT show up? Mm -hmm. You're going to be like, well, your metadata is like, just you made up the standard. Like, how would we be able to parse <laughs> your metadata? There's like no, and because NFTs very rarely link directly to the media, they link to metadata that links to the media. Uh, these, it's it's hard to like get a render, which is like, I think a uh, underappreciated aspect. I have a, so I have a whole on chain rant I can give you give you too, but that was, that was yeah. My, like, hopefully that no, was go for it, go for it. Can, yeah, it's that 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 is useful. And in the on chain rant, what does that entail? Uh, so I I think that. People are bad at events overall. So do you do you kind of understand what what like a contract event is? Assume I do, but those who don't, uh, explain yeah, okay. what an event is. Yeah. So when you're writing a smart contract, there's 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 two ways to access data from a smart contract. There's functions that you can call on the blockchain that return data to you. These are called like read functions. And then there's events that these contracts emit as they do things. And so if you want the current owner, here's an example, right? 
if you want the current owner of a token, you can just call owner of on an ERC721 contract. And that involves like calling an RPC node and then it with like a token ID and it'll return an address to you. And that's really easy. And like you have to have an RPC node, but that's, that's you know, Alchemy and, and all these services are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that hard. Events are, as the developer writes the contract, they write events, which are emitted by the contract. Like this, this is code that they write that then emit data from the contract. And so, for example, when you transfer a token, there's what's called a transfer event, which says from, it's an event that says from this address to this address, this token ID was transferred. Uh, and the transfer event is kind of like a tricky one because the way that events work in Ethereum, the transfer event for an NFT looks exactly like the transfer event for an ERC-20, like a fungible token. And so if you've ever seen wallets that say like, you have this balance of NFT and mm-hmm. like with an integer next to it, that's the token ID because they think that your token was a fungible token instead of a non-fungible token. Got it. Uh, but because ERC-721 is like very well specced and events are part of the spec, uh, NFT events are pretty good. Markets don't have specs. Like markets don't have a de facto ERC. And so what events come out of markets is like all over the place. And so if you're trying to understand like how much someone paid in, in what currency and everything, it can get like really, really gnarly. Mm. And so it's my kind of my kind of like takeaway point to all of this is that, and I think we're gonna probably at Zora write a blog post at about this at some point. Uh, right now, everyone optimizes contracts for uh, gas, but optimizing your contracts for com- like programmatic readability is also really important. Both from a like what read methods do you expose on your contract, and also like what events you emit. Got it. So as an industry, how do you imagine everybody kind of getting more on the same page uh, with, with a lot of these standards, with organizing everything? Um, what's, what's kind of required to get there? Time, I, I think. I think it's just an immature industry, right? And it's people, people talk about things like HTTP. If you think about it, every ERC or many ERCs are kind of de facto protocols for different things, right? NFTs, ERC721 is a protocol for non-fungible ownership. Uh, And it takes time to develop these things well. And there are plenty of optimizations that can be made. Um, And I think it takes time for people to get on the same page as to how to structure things because everyone has an opinion. And over time, I think convenience makes those opinions converge. And so... Hmm. I think one day it would be great to have like EIPs around like, okay, do you have an NFT image? Does that image have attributes? Like this is how your metadata should be structured. Those like the tricky thing is that those aren't actually Ethereum improvements. And so they shouldn't really be Ethereum improvement proposals. They should almost be like web three consortium type things where it's like a metadata encoding standard uh, for any chain, right? Because every chain, not not just Ethereum, runs into this problem. Just because you're an NFT on Solana doesn't mean that you have the metadata problem. Doesn't mean that you don't have the metadata problem. That was it. Mm-hmm. That was the sentence. Got it. Got it. So another point of expertise, which I wanted to have you on again, is because your machine learning background. Um, and AI and ML is something that I know very little about. Um, but I feel like when the two 
when the three worlds kind of collide, ML, AI, and Web3, we could have some pretty interesting stuff happen. Um, specifically on the data side, I'd love to get some, some context and help me understand this better. Uh, all this data that you're indexing, where does AI, where does ML kind of come into play? For sure. So I think for NFTs right now, there's two, there's a bunch of like financialization applications that you can use ML for and like, mm -hmm. you know, projection, prediction, et cetera. I think the most compelling use cases near term are search and recommendation. So search is, search kind of falls into two steps. It's, it's retrieval. Does this thing match this thing I'm looking for? And then it's ranking. So an example of this is, let's say I search for ape, right? There's a million tokens now that have ape in the name or in the metadata or somewhere are somehow associating themselves with the word ape because board apes are so popular. How to rank those things is where ML comes in. So use it, you can use machine learning to understand like based off of these features that you derive about the token. For example, a really good feature might be like the age of the token, how long it's been on the blockchain. Uh, another one might be like number of transfers might be a really good feature. You can derive rankings based off of what is what's probably re relevant to a user when you're showing them a list of results for the search term ape. The second thing is recommendation, where uh, for a user, what else is relevant to that user? And so, for example, like if you're a a person who collects rare NFTs, like everything in your wallet is is like you know, top five percentile rarity NFTs from various collections, you should be recommended tokens from collections that are are rare or have rare attributes, right? And and that's a thing that you can actually fully understand based off of metadata and derive that like, hey, this is an interesting feature. This is an interesting item for a user. Instead of showing them, if we're trying to show them something from, you know, what's a random collection. If we're trying to show them a, a crypto coven, we should show them a crypto coven with a rare attribute rather than a common attribute because they're willing to pay more for a premium mm, got it. for that piece, right? Got so it. I think those are the two like first and like biggest things that aren't quite cracked yet. We're, at Zora, we're taking a crack at that. Our search is currently really good at retrieval. I think the recommendation needs a little bit of, or sorry, the ranking needs a little bit of uh, work. And then we're planning on doing some stuff around recommendation in the future. Got it. Got it. I'm trying to think about what other questions to kind of pick your, your brain about. I mean, what what else are you seeing, I guess, on, on the data landscape that you think creators should be more aware of, should be more alert to, whether it be tools, whether it be ways as to kind of grow a community using data? Um, what are your thoughts around that? I think I think growing a community using data is, is really powerful. Um, the... Finding like who your target audience is, is is really important. I think it's harder than it sounds. It's it's not like it is with like ad targeting where you can just say like this is the exact type of person I want to identify and, and pitch to. But I think that there's a lot of value in creators trying to become a little bit more technical. Like for example, learning SQL is not that hard, uh, and something like Dune will let you answer a lot of questions that you may have about who owns your stuff, and it's like. I think in an afternoon, if you just take a SQL course, you'll be able to query for how many of your token holders ho also hold a board ape. Mm -hmm. 
and it's I think a lot of people see the technical side and get really intimidated and it's actually I think more approachable than think people would generally uh, expect uh, but the the problem of being early days and why being early is so alpha is that it requires more depth and technical knowledge and so if you want to be a all the bleeding edge creators are like fairly technical like Blau is like actually very technical so, so is RIC so are a lot of these artists Latasha is very technical a lot of these artists are like they may not not all of them like are writing code all the time some of them are uh, but they all like understand how these systems work very fundamentally or at a level that I think is deeper than your average consumer. And uh, I think, especially entering a bear market, the thing that I think people should really be doing is trying to innovate with the form and like stretch themselves to do not just community building, but try new ways of doing community. For example, like, you know, you could have a mint, you have a mint season pass. You could easily have a mint membership card that gets you like early access to things and like gates your community. But right now that requires some technical knowledge that, isn't like super easy to, to have, but hopefully we're going to get there. Hopefully the tooling gets better. Hopefully these things become no code or low code and people can kind of compose these experiences that use like, Hey, this is, who is the person right now? Oh, they're X person. Well, then we should show this, or then we should have let them into this new mint or we should do whatever it is. Mm. And, uh, but those, those are, they're, they're hard to do right now. Just, because they're inherently technical. Yeah. Well, listen, I I learned a lot throughout this conversation. I think before I let you go, tell me more about what's what's coming out on Wednesday with Zora and this new API that you guys are pushing out. What can we expect from there? So I think uh, we have a new API out. It's if for, for the developers in the audience, we have a new GraphQL API out. It's got a lot of really cool features. It's got using our API, you can effectively see for a token all every like sale that was settled on chain including how much they paid to mint it and so you can actually see like for an individual token here's the start value here's the first sale here's the second sale yada yada you can all you can do all the regular like here's what's in a wallet here's what's in a collection type things but i think we've managed to do some really powerful stuff around like transcoding media and, and metadata standardization that should help a lot of people build kind of these experiences and then i think we've done a lot of interesting data level stuff for analytics and being able to understand uh, like price over time and history of NFTs. Uh, so oh. that, I think that's going to be, that, I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be really cool. I, I was telling someone, I think someone that inevitably is going to build a tax tool on top of it, but mm. that's kind of cool that I think we can both be the underpinnings for like an artist trying to do a drop and also be like a tax person's like you know fantasy scenario hmm. interesting yeah i guess the whole i'd even argue that that a lot of the tax applications are incredibly early uh, and need a, a ton of improvement um so i'm excited to see what you guys roll out and i guess eric before i let you go where can we find you specifically and kind of learn more about what you're doing at zora yeah definitely the best place is twitter i'm at programmer on twitter and uh it's a good yeah. that's a good handle <laughs> i wish it was an nft yeah <laughs> love it eric we got to do this again soon thanks again yeah it's great chatting adam thank you congratulations on making it this far into the episode you are a champ and because of that i want to say thank you by giving you a free participation nft 
You can claim yours today by visiting adamlevy.io forward slash NFT. Follow the steps on your screen. You'll be good to go. Also, depending on which platform you're listening on, be sure to like, subscribe, comment, share, favorite, etc. It really helps grow the platform and our reach online. And last but not least, I want to give some love and recognize one of our NFT sponsors who's helping make this episode a reality. They are CyberConnect, a decentralized social graph protocol allowing users to own and control their social connections while providing a universal data layer backed by powerful social features to empower developers. Already with 150,000 users and 3 million connections, CyberConnect is the largest decentralized social graph supporting Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Near, and Solana with more coming soon. To learn more, visit cyberconnect.me and start connecting with everyone in Web3.